Thank you for again tuning into the Ubuntu People's Podcast. My name is Arande Ash. This is episode 75, a conversation with Dr. Joseph C. Mancini, who is a medical doctor and an opioid specialist. Dr. Mancini began doing work on addiction in the late 90s. He talks about the history of it prior to then, from Nixon in the early 70s to the Reagans in the mid 80s. There were medical solutions that could have and should have been tried, specifically a drug called Suboxone, that the French had much success with treating their heroin epidemic in the late 90s and early 2000s. We talk about where the drugs are coming from, how they're getting in, but more importantly, what we can do to those who are losing their lives to opioids. If you know a relative, family member, or friend who's addicted, this is an important show to listen to. today to be having a conversation with Dr. Joseph Mancini. I've had a couple PhDs, but this is the first medical doctor <laughs> I've had on the show. Uh, the gentleman wrote a book, Heroin Death, How to Stop the Opioid Crisis. Is for, I consider that the Ubuntu People's Podcast is being listened to by conscious people out there. So you know when we say opioid crisis, what's going on in this country, uh, specifically what's been in the media for the past few years. So here's somebody who was in the medical field for a long time and dealt with this issue, dealt with it long enough, whereas I think his wife said, stop talking about it so much, just write a book about it. So he did that. So we're talking again with uh, Dr. Joe C. Mancini. The book is called Heroin Death, How to Stop the Opioid Crisis, and we'll give you links about how to go and get it. Um, but Dr. Mancini, welcome to the Ubuntu People's Podcast. Thank you. you know, before we started recording, we were just drawing back and forth about life. And I always start with just finding out about people's history a little bit. Because one of the things I learned in communication is that meaning resides in people, not in information, right? So we got to know you. And once you talk about you, then what you say matters. I got to know you a little bit. So you grew up in Rochester, New York, or a professional you were there? Yes, I grew up in Rochester, New York. Went to college at uh, Boston College okay. in Boston. Went back to Syracuse for um, medical school. Okay. And back to Rochester for uh, residency. So I'm trained as a family doc. Practiced in Rochester for quite a while. And then in the late 90s, 1999 to be exact, I was doing family practice and a friend of mine was running a drug and alcohol treatment center. And he needed some help two hours a week, just a medical type person to oversee things. And so I, I did that. And um, I found myself getting very interested in the problem. Right off the bat, we were seeing primarily alcoholics and heroin addicts. And in those days, heroin addicts were either on nothing or on methadone. And methadone is very restricted and has to be obtained in a, in a very strict, uh, federally qualified environment, which his center that I was working at was, was more of a detox center. So I did that for a couple of years, and then he needed more time, so I kind of gave him more time, and then, uh, then another guy came along and needed some time. And so what was happening over the next few years starting right around 2000. I was doing less and less family practice and more and more addiction medicine, they call it. And there's actually a sort of a specialty in addiction medicine. And um, you said now, so that wasn't the case no, in the early two, in the early two, late 90s, early 2000s. It was just starting. In the early days, addiction is a very um, mysterious thing to medical people. And for years and years, the only people that took care of drug addicts and alcoholics were psychiatrists and social workers. And so um, as things progressed with high-tech stuff in medicine, some people, uh, radiologists who are very high-tech, discovered 
in some of their studies that people with addiction problems, things change in their brain and they could see the changes. So once that started happening, the medical profession re-examined it and said, well, maybe this really is a disease. Maybe it's not just a moral failure if you're addicted to something. And so a group emerged, expanded from just psychiatrists to, to actual medical people mm -hmm. who created their own little group. And so I joined the group and, you know, we were out there preaching, this is a disease. It's not a, you know, just say no proposition. Right. <laughs> so Nancy wasn't on to anything in the mid 80s. She missed the point. She <laughs> missed the point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But to this day, believe it or not, it's still an issue. Of all the drug and alcohol treatment centers in the country, the bias is still there. Two-thirds of them still think it's, oh, it's a matter of choice, it's a matter of, of a moral failure, and will not recommend things like methadone, a drug that I talk about in, in this book, which is known as Suboxone to most people, uh, is similar to methadone but safer and easier to use, and it works. So when that came out in 03, I took a short course to learn how to use it. And two of us in Rochester were prescribing it. And, and it's unlike methadone, you could actually prescribe it in the office, which was the whole idea of it. So with methadone, you had to be sort of in a treatment center to be yeah. sort of, it was highly regulated at that time. So you had to sort of get it. Yeah. You had to be more, it was a little bit more serious, a little bit more involved to get methadone. Way more. In fact, you had to go in every day, drink your dose in front of the, the person there, because methadone is a tricky drug. It, you can overdose on it. Uh, the beauty of this Suboxone, which is the brand name, I refer to it as buprenorphine, okay. which is the generic name that really is the thing that works, is that a doctor can prescribe it in his office so that an addict, who often gets stigmatized, can be sitting next to somebody with high blood pressure who's going in for medication and doesn't have to feel untoward that somebody's looking down on me because right. I'm going in to get meth or anything like that. Exactly. But methadone, sorry, not meth. And so, theoretically, that was supposed to make it more available. It hasn't worked out that way, and so that started to frustrate me, uh, that the fact that here was this drug that was safe, and literally, it's an opioid itself, but it's the only opioid that you can't overdose on. I mean, everything else, you take enough, your respirations stop, and you die. And which is why we're having this crisis. Back when I started, it wasn't a crisis yet. Between 1999 and uh, today, overdose deaths have like quadrupled. Um, there's more deaths from opioids now than there are from motor vehicle accidents, gunshot wounds, more than all the AIDS uh, during the AIDS epidemic. And it continues to climb, which is what I find unnerving. So what I've done in, in here, I tried to explain in the book, I tried to explain, well, why is that? Why, why does it keep going up? Why can't we get a grip on this? I like to explain that to people and why we're having an epidemic. I want to know. I want to know because okay. I, I, I'm coming from, you know, the communication field, the soft sciences, okay. social sciences. So I'm always looking for a causal effect and I'm always looking for, okay, what is going on in society? Because at some point I want to bring up the so-called war on crack because, yes. because, because again, there's, as a conscious man, specifically a conscious black man, at some point I look at this stuff and I go, Really? Yeah. So you're telling me when we saw, and I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, I was in middle school and my middle school is in a black and Latino neighborhood and there are literally crack vials all over and there's bombed out buildings because there's yeah. crack sales going in. And I'm going, okay. And I'm glad you said that. You said in 1999, and again, I was in middle school 10 years before that in 89. So I think people were, you said in 1999, people were kind of unsure. Yeah. And it's not an accident of history because I'm glad we're at this point where we can now treat and help fellow human beings become the people they should be and recognize that it's not a moral issue. It's something chemical that happens and it needs to be treated. And if we have something like Suboxone that can help treat it, 
I'm sure we're going to get into big pharma and all that stuff. Why are we not doing this? But there's a part of me that goes, when I hear this stuff, is like, so it was a crack epidemic and a war on crack, but now it's an opioid crisis and we got to help people? So there's a part of me that cynically says that. And there's a, there's a part of, I think, black America that I have to say that for on this podcast. is like we look at it going, so we watch the entire generation get crucified, vilified, prison. Families get yeah. decimated because it was a war against them and it was their moral repugnancy. They were awful people. And so go to jail, get out of our way. And now we want to help everybody else that happened to be. And again, the view is from some segments of people that I know, like opioid is a, it's a red state problem. You know, it's a red state problem. Uh-huh. And so now that it's a red state problem and red state is populated by a certain type of people, now we got to help them because they look like your mom, they look like your dad, they look like your cousin, they look like your aunt, but you couldn't, not use per se, but the system could not look at a black body, a black face, and say, let me offer you the same kind of sort of humanitarian services we're now offering opioid people. That is just my diatribe. I'm not, I'm speaking not so much for myself, but I think there's a big audience out there that looks at this issue and go, get the hell out of here with all this crisis stuff, man. You let my mom and my grandmother, my aunt and my uncle die, or you imprison them. Where was the, the humanity then? Just to give you some historical. In early 1970, there were two deaths per month from opioid. And in those days, opioids were like uh, crack. You know, and, uh, the only people dying or taking heroin were, there's a great historical book called uh, Prostitutes, Gamblers, and Thieves, and Jazz Musicians. Sounds like a country western song. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> so at the end of 1970, there were two deaths per day from opium. So Nixon goes, oh, whoa, we got a problem here. And it was all tied to the French connection and the heroin that was coming in from, from France. And so the awareness went up, but it was still sort of that same thing. Let's put them in jail. But now, fast forward, it hits everybody. And so, like you just said, Oh my God, John Bon Jovi's daughter overdosed at, at uh, Hamilton College in upstate New that. York. Didn't know that. And everybody's getting hit by this. Right. Every socioeconomic standard. So we've got to help. We've got to treat. Now, uh, unfortunately, that, you know, war on drugs and put them in prison, there's still that mentality. Well, our president is elected and there are conservatives winning seats based on a Nixon era philosophy of regular so-called regular folks believing if we're punitive then we're really doing something oh, about yeah. the issue so oh, yeah. it's, it's a farce it's a complete farce. it's a total farce so we treat addiction we've treated addiction for years by right putting people in jail that doesn't treat it but now like you said you know all this awareness and just the the, the numbers alone are scaring the hell out of everybody in addition to opioid deaths going up you know quadrupling since 99 Prescriptions for narcotic opioid pain pills also quadrupled during the same time period. Somebody's making a bunch of money from all this problem. Oh, well, that's part of the story. Doctors for years were afraid to prescribe opioids because they thought they were addictive. And then you might might be uh, maybe too young to remember the the hospice movement in, in England in the 70s led to treating terminal cancer patients with opioids to make them comfortable. Because they were going to die anyway, at least make the last couple of days feel something. And in those days, before that happened, doctors would say, well, I can't give this patient an opioid. They might get addicted. And you go, they're going to be dead in two weeks. So it took hold. It's great. It's great for cancer patients. It went sideways, however, in in the 80s because... The pharmaceutical companies thought, hmm, if you can treat 
chronic, you know, pain with opioids, why not treat other non-cancer pains, chronic conditions, backache, headache, arthritis? So three things happened between 1980 and the mid-90s that I think fueled this thing. In 1980, a short letter to the editor, to the New England Journal, said opioids probably not addictive. And it was based on a ridiculous statistical survey, which if you want to hear about it, 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 it drives me crazy. Probably financed by the pharmaceutical companies because they saw the future. I always, I always bring skepticism into this. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Right. A statistician at Boston University was commissioned to look at 300,000 patients who were in the hospital over a period of time in the late 70s and look at every drug they took and look at every side effect they had. So somehow he located 12,000 of these people who had been put on an opioid, maybe one, maybe two, n no one knows, while they were in the hospital. And then looking at the same charts, he discovered only four people became addicted. Now, that is nothing related to a research study. It's, it's, the numbers are minuscule. It's random. Right. So he wrote, probably not addictive. In those days, doctors were afraid to prescribe opioids. So in 1986, a pain doctor at Sloan Kettering in New York saw that editorial and thought, hmm, let me look at my pain patients. So he looked at 38 of his patients who he was treating with opioids and found that only two of them became addicted. Then when he examined everybody closer, he, he realized that the two that became addicted had a history of addiction. So he writes an article, again, not a good research article, just this observation, that opioids are not addictive, it's the person. He was already stigmatizing the person. The person had addiction, they're the ones that get hooked. Guess what happened then? Purdue Pharmaceutical saw this. So it's not just chickens for Purdue. Purdue Pharmaceutical saw this, tracked it, and you may remember, well, you probably have heard of the drug OxyContin. Yes. Okay, so Purdue released OxyContin in 1996. They hired this pain guy from Sloan Kettering and said, listen, we will pay you to go around the country and preach that opioids are not addictive. Then they did something else, though. Big Pharma sends drug reps, they call them. Beautiful, blonde, young women yes. to go into everybody's office and smile and bring out a nice chart with a bunch of pills and, would you be interested? Well, you couldn't have said that better. <laughs> and I, I can tell you the day she walked into my office. <laughs> I can still see her. This is sounding like a country western it song. Is. It is. She walked in it and the rest is she wrote, put you down the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> she sat there and said, and she, she quoted these, the, the letter in the, to the editor in this, this lousy article in the Journal of Pain, it was, and said, well, opioids aren't addictive, but this one, Oxycontin, she says to me, is even less addictive. I go, what? I can hear the purpose coming. I can hear the purpose coming. I can hear the Xanis coming. I can hear them perks coming. I can hear the words coming. I can so it's not addictive, but this, this one is, is less, less addictive. Yeah. But addiction is, no, 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 but this one is less. This so you're admitting, even, you're admitting addiction. And they built this whole argument that because Oxycontin is released slowly, rather than if you take a Percocet, it works fast. Mm -hmm. The theory that they were promoting was that, well, it releases slowly so people don't get high, they won't get addicted. Well, that's when doctors uh, started saying, well, geez, if that's the case, and they're telling me I can treat people that have chronic non-cancer pain, and that's why the prescription is quadrupled. Well, guess what? Purdue got sued because they knew it was addictive. They taught their reps to go out and basically teach what they knew was wrong in order to sell it. So they got sued. Class action suit settled finally in 2005 for $600 million, which is peanuts for Purdue, but they kept it under the radar. The CEO, the CFO, and the 
chief medical officer got probation and community service and but guess what? Purdue still cranks out Oxycontin today. And it's very addictive. And everybody knows it. So then another another thing happened. I was starting to see this in the early 2000s. People that had gotten hooked on Oxycontin, they would go to their doctor and then after a while the doctor would say, no, 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 I can't give you any more. So then they would buy it on the street. Mm-hmm. And it's very expensive. So what the, what the heroin addicts would do, they would take the Oxycontin, crush it up, and inject it. So they'd get the gangbusters high that was almost as good as heroin. It got so expensive that another thing was happening, which was that a small town in western Mexico changed its sugarcane crop to opium and developed what you might have heard of, called, uh, heroin called black tar heroin. And it's very pure, it's very strong, and it's very cheap. And they got it into the United States in such a way that to this day, they literally set up a pizza delivery style way for an opioid dependent person who needs their opioid, can make a phone call and get the heroin, this black tar heroin, delivered to their house. When was all this, around what time? Started in the mid 90s. They started in LA and up and down the West Coast. And it, it, it just, over the, the next 20 years, it's grown and it still goes today because it's cheap and people who, who need opioids will find a way to find these phone numbers and get it delivered and the problem with it and the, and the way it fuels the overdose rate is that when someone was taking injecting uh, heroin in the old days it was always watered down so that the, the dealer could make more money and when they were injecting Oxycontin, they at least knew the dose. Mm-hmm. This stuff, nobody waters it down because the drivers and the operators don't get paid on what they sell. They get a flat salary. So there's no incentive for them to water it down. So when someone injects it, they don't know what they're getting. And often they overshoot. And when you take too much, opioids are the only drug of abuse, mood-altering substance that will stop respirations and stop them quickly. Now, there's another factor, and I'll give you a comparison to meth. There is now a, um, a sophisticated drug cartel in China that synthesizes fentanyl. Fentanyl is, is the new killer because it's a synthetic opioid that is 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin. And guess what they're doing? They have set up, they mail it into the United States. They literally send it to the U.S. Postal Service, and it's not been able to be detected. It gets out into the streets, and dealers are either selling it per se or putting it in the, in the heroin, making the heroin more potent. So a person, again, doesn't know what they're injecting or snorting, and the chances of accident. These are mostly accidental overdoses because they don't know the dose and their, their breathing stops. The other thing I, I learned is that the, um, this Chinese uh, group is, is sending it to Mexico and many of the, the cartel and dealers there are putting the fentanyl in the heroin and just bringing it in and it's way more potent. So what we're seeing is this continued rise and it's ironic. Um, prescribers are prescribing four times as much, but about five years ago, it, it leveled off. Mm-hmm. So it's still four times as much as it was you know, 20 years ago. But the prescribing has, has leveled off, but the death rate continues to rise. We think it's because when someone gets dependent on what they're getting, if they go to the streets and buy the more potent stuff, of new heroin users were on a prescription narcotic opioid first. That's, so that's the gateway. That's the gateway. Get them hooked to save money and to you know, get more bang for their buck, uh, if you will. That's what they have to do. They said it wasn't a gateway drug. 
My homie was taking subs and he ain't wake up the whole while These billionaires, they caked up Paying up Congress so we take their drugs Murderers who will never face the judge And we dance into a song about a face gone numb But I seen homies turn gray, noses drain and blood We talk about pharma, we talk about Purdue, we talk about Obviously people at some point seeing, wait a second, we can make a bunch of money from this, so why shouldn't we make a couple billion dollars? It costs us $600 million after something goes wrong, so be it, we'll write that off. But you've also just mentioned what sounds like, just hearing about it, like a literal chemical attack on America from China, from Mexico. And again, we're dismissing the argument that we're having this epidemic because individuals are somehow morally corrupt. But... Is there something, come on, like, like alcohol addiction, we're trying to find an alcohol gene, is there an addictive gene per se? Because I remember when I had ACL surgery, I think I was, I, mean, I was given Oxy, I don't know. But I remember like six months later, I still had a couple pills left and one of my friends, and I didn't think about this till about wow. a year later, one of my friends goes, do you have any of those pills? And I go, I don't care, here you go. But I didn't put it together until about a year, year and a half later when somebody was telling me, you know, our friend such and such has an addiction thing. And I'd never put it together that this is what's happening. Just, there are these extra pills, there are these extra things. And I'm wondering, is it something in him, neurologically, chemically or he just got it because he also had pain and surgery as well so he he had this stuff yeah. and then he just got hooked this is not what i started walking carcass i lost everything i wanted my blinds drawn too gone to leave this apart my drug dealer was a doctor doctor had the plug from big pharma pharma he said that he would heal me but he only gave me problems, problems My drug dealer was a doctor, doctor Had the plug from Big Pharma, Pharma I think he trying to kill me, kill me Tried to kill me for a dollar, dollar What is going on in our freaking country, man? That is having people need these solutions And obviously whenever there's a need there's always somebody ready to make money to fill that need that is a great question they say it's debt debt institutions and dlc so god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference and the wisdom to know the difference what we know about it. There's, there's a lot of genetic work being done and um, certain genetic markers are being discovered for alcohol, for opioids in particular, but they haven't been put together in, a, in a, such a way that I could go to my doctor and he could check me for the gene and say, you're liable Prone to, to get that. addicted. Okay. We do know just from the epidemiology of it that probably 20% of people have what I like to call a an endorphin deficit. Because endorphins and opioids are basically the same thing. They give you a high stimulation, stimulus, yeah. when things are going well, yeah. so the brain kind of shoots these out. Everything and is wonderful. Endorphins are the stuff we make ourselves, mm -hmm. and it's normal stuff. Opioids are just like gangbusters uh, endorphins. But they're starting to study people who have sort of low baseline endorphins. And we think somewhere between 15 and 20% of people are in this situation. So for instance, 80% of people you give an opioid to will not like it. It'll make them nauseous, especially if they don't have pain. If they have pain, they'll tolerate the, the nausea, the itching. It causes terrible constipation. But if someone who needs it for the pain, it's good pain medicine, they'll take it and then they'll stop. Someone who's in this 20%, there have been descriptions of people who the first opioid they took, for the first time in their life, they felt normal. So it's something in their chemistry, their, their genetics. The problem is we don't know who these 20% are. So a doctor gives a prescription, he or she might be getting somebody hooked. Mm -hmm. We now know you can get hooked as, as early as within five days. Wow. Yeah. So after the whole Purdue thing and all that, doctors just started 
doing it willy-nilly, thinking, well, this isn't going to cause any problem. But now we know it does. So the FDA and the CDC, they're, you know, they're trying to educate docs. But I contend they have, they're not going far enough. What needs to happen? My bias is this. This drug buprenorphine, that's part of Suboxone, that we use for someone who's in opioid withdrawal, heroin withdrawal, if they take it, within 20 minutes they feel better. It takes care of their withdrawal symptoms. And many people stay on it and it stabilizes them. You know, now the moralistic crowd says, well, you're just substituting uh, one opioid for another. But it's not the addictive quality, so it's a better... Well, that's it. It's safer. And what it does is it stabilizes the what I call the lizard brain, you know, the, the basic part of the brain that keeps us alive and mm-hmm. breathe. And, and, you know, and it allows the, the thinking part of the brain to actually make good decisions. Whereas someone who doesn't have that satisfied, I mean, there's stories of heroin addicts who have a choice between picking up their kids at daycare and going to get their next fix. They go for their fix because they are so miserable. One of the things I go into is, I think, my opinion, is that opioids are more addictive than other substances. Tobacco, uh, nicotine and alcohol are right up there with them. But this is extremely addictive because it does two things. Gives direct pain relief in the brain for both physical and emotional pain. They've done studies to show if you give an opioid, you can check any part of the brain, the emotional centers, physical, and you find the opioid. So that's why it's so uh, enticing Mm -hmm. if you have pain. The other thing it does is it causes a gangbusters euphoria. Like, you know, the people that run a marathon get their endorphins going, they feel great. It's that. And it's instant. And, oh, right. You, You inject some heroin or an opioid, it's instant then it's gone in six hours and then you plunge into this withdrawal situation and it's my belief that those three things the pain relief the euphoria and the miserable withdrawal which i contend is is worse than all other withdrawals you know people sweat they get cramping diarrhea and overall just feels so bad it's so miserable that the lizard brain drives someone to just get relief. I've watched it and it's, it's real. This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend, the end of our once somebody gets hooked now there's two phases to getting hooked people would always ask well if you stop will your brain go back to normal you know because changes happen in the brain after mm-hmm. a while. so there there seems to be a, a there, early on there's a point at which if you stop your brain will go back to normal uh, beyond a certain phase brain the brain cells start to die and it may not go back to normal, but with the help of methadone or buprenorphine, it, it will normalize so people can live a, a productive, satisfying life. Past a certain line, you're, 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 transfer, you're transformed yeah. in terms of brain chemistry. Yes. Because cells are destroyed. You're a different person past a certain line. Like, obviously, it changes for each individual, but what is that? Like, I guess it... The answer is it's, it's individual, but probably it's individual based yeah. on whatever their chemistry is. It's based totally on that. Okay. It, it has to do with the um, what we call the opioid receptors in the brain, the proteins and amino acids that absorb the opioid when it's introduced. If those get diminished, then people can't get, you know, they just don't feel normal unless they substitute something. And then they can. My, my belief is that if you work on the recipient and you figure out a way to, to make them comfortable without that, it'll help. It'll help maybe turn the tide on this, on this epidemic. And all 
this drug buprenorphine, which is the only opioid that you can't die from, and that's related to how it's built chemically. It gets underutilized by prescribers, physicians, for several reasons. When it came out in 03, the FDA was worried that it was going to create pill mills. So what did they do? They required physicians, just physicians, not practitioners or PAs, to take an eight-hour course and then to get an adjustment in their DEA number, which is the number that allows you to write for controlled mm -hmm. substance. And doctors went, oh, why do I want to do that? I mean, literally, I couldn't talk my friends into doing it because they would say to me, I don't want a waiting room full of heroin addicts. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to take an eight-hour course. Plus, the other mystique about the drug is that if you have to take an eight-hour course, it must be too dangerous or too complicated. And the reality is, it's the least dangerous opioid. So a bias has, has originated and remains. Now, an interesting thing happened just three years ago, actually from a company here in Raleigh. The drug buprenorphine has been used sparingly since 03 for people who are addicted already, gets them out of withdrawal, maintains them if they want to stay on it. It's also a very good pain medication itself. It does not cause euphoria, does not cause bad withdrawal symptoms like other opioids, and is way less addictive. People get dependent on it, but no one craves it that they have to have. Nobody's shooting, uh, go, going to the, rob the corner store to get money right. to get this stuff. Which is what many people define an addict as. Right. You know. Well, three years ago, the small company in Raleigh got the FDA to approve a lower dose form of it, which happens to be very effective for pain. They did the research, they showed that it is. They put it out there and doctors are afraid to use it because they still have this old they will become addictive thing and then in their they're head that okay. meanwhile doctors are still writing not everybody but there's pockets you know are still handing out the vicodins the percocets the oxycontins because the old do these things need to be just regulated and get off the market well i think there's a role for them it's my belief that if someone needs an opioid and they've never been on one if that's the case, what happens now is a doctor will write a prescription for either Vicodin, Percocet, or Oxycontin, the most commonly prescribed ones. And 20% of them will get hooked. They don't know who they are. So I believe that if someone really needs one for chronic pain, you know, like they just can't function because of their back pain, that the first drug that ought to be tried is this buprenorphine, which is now available. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of it is, doctors don't need an eight-hour course to take this one. So it's very confusing to doctors. They go, whoa, 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 it's the same drug, it still must be too tricky or too dangerous. So it's not being prescribed. Just to regress a little bit, you know, one of the questions I was asking myself is, well, you know, if, if opium's been around for 5,000 years, 12% of opium is morphine. And morphine is what they make heroin out of. So, you know, for years, uh, the Chinese developed a great international trade in opium. We trade opium for silks and porcelain and all that stuff. The wars, wars. The wars. wars. Written over. And that's when you said that about the Chinese. It made me think, remember history like the Boxer Rebellion, things that happened in China or yes. these, these ports, Shanghai in the late 1800s with the British. It's the same thing 110 years later. It's the same exact thing. So that's why I mentioned... I don't want to say there's a chemical attack on America. People think the threat is cyber, but the way you're describing it, if Chinese companies are sending these things, knowing the debilitating effects it will have, not just on the individual, but then the, the secondary and tertiary effects on the people around the individuals, yeah. and now you're not working, so now your kid can't get the thing, now your kid needs help. I don't think it's calculated, but it just, as a student of history, made me think, we're back in the same Yep. shit again yeah for the same audience that requires it so again that goes back to what do we what do we need what in this country makes us hyper crazy that we need this thing that that we can't figure out just by sort of our natural body what what, what do you need what, what is going on right. every culture has something that gets them away from reality i mean way back you know when fruit would rot it would ferment and people would take it and they'd feel better 
I didn't know that. Yeah. Kids, don't try that, please. That goes away, man. <laughs> Rotten food, throw it out. <laughs> it's just gone now to this escalated, I, mean, I like your phrase, uh, uh, an attack. Right. Because it, it really does feel like an attack, too. Because intuitively, I think the, the sellers, they know that 20% of people are going to get hooked. They don't know who they are, but they're just... R- randomly throwing it they're out. They're just, you know, shotgunning it. And it's working. They're making a ton of money. And we're dying. Quand me dans ses bras, me je vois la I want to get another piece of interesting history relative to this buprenorphine. It has to do with France. The people in France started using uh, heroin, I guess, before we did. Well, in the mid-90s, France was having a problem with escalating heroin deaths. And buprenorphine had become available. And so guess what they did? They said to every doctor, look, this stuff works. It helps people get off heroin. It stabilizes them. They said to every doctor, write it, give it to them. Within four years, their overdose rate went down 80% because the drug was available and easy to get and relieved the withdrawal and stabilized people. It comes to our country and we do the opposite. Why? We put up all these roadblocks. I still can't figure that out. When we took the eight hour course, a lot of us said, why? Why are you making this so difficult? Because it's not that hard a drug. They kept these vague, the FDA people were saying, well, we, you know, we, we, don't want, uh, we don't want it just prescribed willy-nilly. Well, they're, they're prescribing Oxycontin and Percocet willy-nilly. A personal story, I went in, I thought I needed shoulder surgery. Went in to see the surgeon. And uh, the surgery was scheduled for six weeks out. On my way out the door, his secretary hands me a prescription for 120 Percocet. I looked at her and said, what's this for? She said, well, you're going to need it after the surgery. After? After, in six weeks. And I looked at her, and I was already doing this work, so I said, you know I could take this and make a fortune out on the street? So I ripped it up in front of her. I wound up canceling the surgery for other reasons. But to this day, there's people telling me that doctors are still doing it. That's the norm. Yeah. Hold me close hold me fast. Magic. Spell you gasp. This is love, When you kiss me, heaven sighs, and now I close my eyes. In the year 2013, the most widely prescribed drug in America was Vicodin, which is hydrocodone which is an offshoot of codeine, which is an opioid. There were more sales of Vicodin than any other drug, Lipitor, blood pressure pills, diabetes pills. And the reason was, it was the only opioid that a doctor or a prescriber could put refills on. It was what they called a Schedule Three narcotic. So, guess what? Busy docs, you know, someone's coming in for pain. Here, hey, take these. And they come back a second time, they go, well, here, take these and we'll put a couple of refills. So I work with a group uh, called uh, Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. And we, we got very upset about this. So we went to the FDA to try to get them to make Vicodin impossible to put refills on. So at least the doctor would pay attention to the patient. I told the story about my knee surgery earlier, but that was the drug. It wasn't Oxy. It was Vicodin for yeah. my, my knee pain after I had ACL surgery. And that friend, six months later or a couple months later, was asking, you know, where are the extra pills? And I, once, I, once I put the two, two together, I'm like, God damn, I should have known. But it's that easy. I mean, people get addicted to opioids for, I think, three reasons. They, they, they get put on it for a legitimate reason. My best example of that is Prince. I think Prince needed opioids for his chronic hip pain, his, uh, you know, all the jumping around he did. He never made it to heroin, but he overdosed on fentanyl because his 
His tolerance kept going up. He needed more. He needed more. Didn't want anybody to know about it. He got that fatal dose from the drugstore the day before. So you're got, convinced. I mean, it sounds like you're convinced because there is no regulation as to the potency of any of this stuff that the majority of these cases are overdoses. Like when we hear Heath Ledger, Heath Ledger just, you know, those guys, they're not going in there going, I'm just going to shoot as much of this as possible no. and hope I wake up. They're doing their normal, whatever their normal routine yeah. is, Yeah. but it's just that batch. Just is just a little that too batch. much. So there's those that need it, then get hooked, and then need it because they've taken it too long. And then my other group, one other group is... Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, the actor. Yeah. He had been an addict 25 years ago. And he was sober for 25 years. And then he relapsed. No one knew he relapsed. And, and they found him with a needle in his arm. And to me, that, that's representative of the picture of, of addiction is a really gripping thing that you have to pay attention to even when you're sober. So mm -hmm. that you know, relapse is always a risk. And then, you know, there's some people that just like to get high. And then they, they try everything when they're young. That may be how he started, but I'm not sure. And um, for some reason, many of them get, probably that 20%, get stuck on the opioids. The, the thing I wanted to mention, the comparison between death from opioids, death from alcohol, and death from cocaine and crack and methamphetamine, is the way they kill people. Opioids stop respirations in a very specific part of the brain. Uppers, cocaine and, and, and those uppers, they don't do that. They don't stop respirations, but they infrequently cause the heart to go berserk. John Belushi was on a speedball, which is a combination of uh, cocaine and heroin. So it's not clear what killed him, whether he just took too much heroin whether the cocaine causes heart to just If you want to take her out cocaine If you want to get down down on the ground cocaine There's a show on USA Network called Mr. Robot hmm. Now Mr. Robot is about this this hacker all the things that we talked about that you have no, <laughs> very little clue about the computer stuff. But he's a hacker and he does basically informational warfare. He is also deeply troubled. He sees a therapist. He's got some psychological issues. He has delusions. He crushes morphine, snorts it, and at the same time he takes Suboxone. I had never heard of Suboxone wow. until last week. On the show. On the show. And so when I read it, and you mention, I go, all right, I know what the, I know what he's talking about. So for me, that's like, maybe you should, have, maybe you know, the universe wanted you to see the show, so you'd be informed when you have the conversation with with Dr. Mancini, right? So we had an opportunity that you mentioned because I remember this conversation in the '90s, in the early late '90s, early 2000s. There was this thing in fashion called heroin chic that mm -hmm. they were getting these rail thin models. Yeah. But I'm I'm recognizing. Well, if fashion is centered in Paris, then everybody's fucking hooked on, sorry for my French there, yeah. everybody's hooked on heroin, you're not going to find any other models, because they're all fucking hooked on heroin, so rather than saying, Dietra, you should really eat some food, you say, Dietra, get out there, because I need to model these freaking clothes, and all of a sudden, <laughs> oh, that's what we were going for. Even though Dietra's 90 pounds, that's what we, go, we were going for, and so you make this excuse for this problem, but the French government didn't. They found a solution, right? And you said, we had an opportunity at that point, and what's the drug that they... Buprenorphine is the generic of suboxone. of suboxone. Okay, so we had an opportunity in this country when this issue started to arise, and it didn't arise medically. I heard of heroin chic was a fashion term. Yeah. In pop culture, there's this, you know, you look back at magazines and there are these rail thin, pale, sickly looking people and we're celebrating them. We're celebrating this look, but we had an opportunity to actually recognize the problem. So like me seeing Suboxone and Mr. Robot last week and having this conversation, there were signs, right? There were signs of what was to come. Mm. Mm. So why didn't we? You know, it's something to look at 
you know, for us as Americans or first world people to see a solution being attempted in Tanzania or some other third world country, like they don't know what the hell they're doing. Why? But this is a first world country, one of our allies, one of our friends. Culturally, they're different, but you know, in terms of life, it's kind of like us. It's working for them. Why didn't we? And I go back to this, this conceit of, you go back to Nixon in the 70s, he was making a political attempt to subvert radicalism from the 60s. Yeah. He was making a political attack on people who would be oppositional to him. So let's vilify them. Hippies are drug dealers, yeah. drug addicts. It's hippies and black people. They're it's criminals. hippies and criminals. It's the, the minorities are criminals because, well, they, they pose a problem to him politically. So let's criminalize them yeah. and let's do that. So we get to this point where there is this solution. The Suboxone thing is available. It's proven to be effective in France. This is a country just like us. Yes. So then my conceit then is we didn't do it because we're still thinking that people who are helping are the criminals in terms of the Nixon error yeah. categorization of druggies yeah. are inner city, minority, left wing, yeah. who gives a shit about those people anyway. That's why. I, it was not a medical reason. It was, like you said, this cultural thing where we still think. Yeah. And now when John Bon Jovi's daughter at Hamilton College or Phyllis Seymour Hoffman or Heath Ledger, yeah. who are... I'm sorry to say they're a certain color. That's or they're, right. they, they have a, they're at a certain economic status in this country. When it hits them, then we go, oh my God, we have a problem. Yes. We have a problem. And now Farmer wants to help. Yeah. Well, not that Farmer wants to help. It sounds like the help has always been there. Yeah. yeah. But now we're ready to do it. And I just, it kills me. I almost want somebody like you, through your medical lens, almost like informational or cultural reparation. I want somebody to go back and say, we fucked up with crack. We did it the wrong way. <laughs> you killed my community and put yeah. all of us in jail yes. because we were fucking idiots and we didn't know how to handle it. And now, peace and love. Let's treat everybody now. And I know it's been going on. Obviously, we've had conversations. We, we've been talking about since the 70s, but we also mentioned, man, you know, the, the rotting fruit. Everybody wants to get high at some point in human history. We want to feel good. 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 But it just kills me, man, looking back yeah. historically, like we had an opportunity in the 90s with Suboxone. It was there available. But we also had an opportunity 10 years before. And again, I understand because it sounds like the research started taking off at the turn of the century and people started taking it seriously and attacking it the way we uh, attack research on cancer. I mean, we're serious about it, unfortunately, after the crack epidemic. I'm going to start using the crack crisis. Yeah. I'm not going to say war on drugs anymore because if we're calling this war and we're substituting crisis because crisis seems to be sort of more medical, more soft, we're going to help people. And war says we're attacking people. That's what they did for 20 years. And it's a fucking joke. But I don't know. I'm going off on a diatribe there. But I just, I just, it just upsets me yeah. that we had this opportunity over and over again to do something. And because we think it's only affecting a certain population, screw them. Let them die. And we're still doing it, though. People of color who are found with marijuana are put in jail. I mean, I blame Nixon, Rockefeller, and his stupid laws, drug wars, and, or drug laws, and Reagan. I mean, you know, let's, let's just put them in jail. Put them out of sight. And here's another irony. It's cheaper to put somebody in a drug treatment program than it is to put them in jail. Right. So everybody, farmers are making money from uh, the drugs, the heavier drugs. Yeah, the prison industrial complex is making money. Yep. From um, I had a friend who, who two weeks ago, or actually no, no, he was in a, he was in a detention, an ICE detention center for two months. He was released because it just it was bogus, right? It it was three hundred dollars a day to keep him there. Exactly. They could have released him at any point. Yeah. But why would you? Right. Because somebody's making right. three hundred dollars a day for three months. Yeah. Thirty thousand bucks to keep him there for three months for no reason. Yeah. Absolutely no reason, right? Right. When the solution was, he's not a threat. He's, just let him go. There was no reason to get him. Yeah. Absolutely not. But there's money behind this. So 
Joe, what's what's Doctor Man City? What's the solution? I know you you pointed out of the book. What's 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 the besides okay. so suboxone things like that? My solution is education, 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 which is what you're doing, right? Just by talking about it. I in deep down inside me, I think that if people understand opioids, I mean, one of my pitches when I give a talk is, you will learn how to protect yourself your family and your friends just by understanding that opioids are so addictive and so dangerous and you'll pay more attention when your doctor hands you a prescription you know a lot of people get handed a prescription and they don't even ask what it is here take this for pain there are doctors that don't understand opioids when i started prescribing suboxone uh, after about a couple of years a friend of mine calls me up a doc he says Joe, I got this patient on crack. Can I give him Suboxone? I said, no, that doesn't work for crack. Don't you understand opioids are different from... So I believe the medical profession needs educating. Here's another thing. The National Safety Council did a, a, a study a few years ago. They looked at 500 companies with more than 50 employees. 70% reported that they had issues in their employees with opioid misuse that affected their productivity, their absenteeism, 70%. So why isn't corporate America learning about this, what to pay attention to, you know? So I think everybody, if they understand opioids and, and the risks, and uh, that, that'll help get a grip. We've got to do everything, I think, mm -hmm. you know, from every side. So you mentioned, we've mentioned before this number, the 20%. 20% of yeah. people who just, it's like, at some, some point in the history, a phrase came up that like 10% of the human population is homosexual. Throughout history, right? Right. So we're talking about 20% of people, just they're going to be, they have this chemical, I don't want to say imbalance because it makes it sound like they're, so what's the right phrase? They have the like, propensity yeah. to be easily they're addicted. susceptible. To opioid addiction. To opioid addiction. How do we recognize, how do you recognize those people? Well, if we can get a genetic marker, that would be ideal, and somebody's working on that. Hopefully it'll come up, but that still could be years away. I believe the way to recognize them is what I mentioned to you earlier, that if someone needs an opioid and they've never been on one, so you don't know their risk, that you start with buprenorphine. I wrote a letter to the editor to that effect. References, I sent it to the American family physician because I wanted to get the family docs. Guess what? They rejected my letter. So I wrote back, I said, why? And never got an answer. So I'm just gonna keep submitting it till somebody publishes it because you know, a lot of people, if I say that, mm -hmm. they think I'm crazy from a, as a medical person. But I believe that's because so many people don't understand opioids, don't understand buprenorphine and how it's different, and we just so underutilize it. You know, we spend $6 billion a year advertising on television that only a doctor can prescribe. You can't walk in them. Have you seen the one for opioid-induced constipation? We wow, that's specific. That's specific, and the implication is you're already far You gone. can take more opioids if you can cure your constipation. Right. I saw that in, and I, I almost had a seizure. My wife went; she couldn't calm me down for quite a while. We're too far gone. Then? Are we too far gone? Are we too far gone? If we're, uh, if the ads are on TV during prime time for opioid-induced constipation, meaning, like you said. Keep doing your thing. Yeah, keep taking your vine, keep taking your, your oxy. Still... If you're having problem shitting, then we got something for you for that specific issue. Yeah. Are we too far gone? Oh, I hope not. I, you know, I tend to be an optimist, but boy, this is, it's very discouraging. As the deaths keep rising, you know, 115 people a day die from an opioid overdose. As I said, more than from gunshot wounds, more than from motor vehicle accidents, more than all the people that died in the AIDS epidemic. There, there's no sign that they're slowing down. Like the opioid crisis, the drug war, or the heroin war, or the crack war, there's always been a war on something. And we make the point that every human society everywhere in the world finds some substance, some drug, for lack of a better word, that allows them to communicate with the 
ancestors or yeah. escape the reality, right? Yeah. Everything in our nine, I mean, 2018 world is overblown, exacerbated, not because it's big, which the crisis is, but the fact that we know about it, there's so much scrutiny on it, there's so much, yeah. like if we had information technology and the internet in 1970, when Nixon has this war on drugs and war yeah. in the inner city, war on minority people, yeah. would we have had the same response? One of the things I keep hearing, when 70s and 80s, when these opioids are being prescribed, it actually comes down, and you mentioned your back issue, it comes down to the patient saying, on a scale of fucking one to 10, what is my level of pain and my tolerance? And why are you gonna trust somebody? Because you said, medically, you would prescribe Suboxone for somebody who has never had yeah. an opioid. But you have to rely on somebody telling you they've never had an opioid. Oh. And if I'm taking opioids, why am I gonna tell you that? So that's part of, that's a built-in trap in the system. Yeah. So is there a way to, ah. is there a way around, because then you go to the doctor and they say, what's your pain tolerance? What's your pain level? I'm gonna, even when you're a child, the, the seven-year-old child is being asked, what's your pain What the hell do they know what their pain level right. is? Right. So if it starts with that, I mean, is there some way around that? There is no scientific way to, to judge pain, right? No, we tried and it failed. I mean, they made pain the fifth pathway in the hospitals 30 years ago. You know, blood pressure, pulse, respiration. They added pain. That fed this whole thing. Now they've taken it off because you you can't really measure it. If you say to me, how's your pain, 1 to 10, I come up with a number. And if I'm an addict, I'm going to tell you 10, so you're going to give me something. Exactly. You bet. That's yeah. what they've been doing. Yeah. Dr. Mancini, we could we could we could go on about this, but we'll probably have a, another conversation at some other time. But before we started recording, you were you were kind of mentioning that you were kind of new to the information age and podcasting. And do you have a website? People need to know what Every you're talking about. Do you have website, a website? I break out into a sweat. <laughs> no website yet. No website. So how can people get the book? The book is called Heroin Death. How to Stop the Opioid Crisis. Again, it's Joseph C. Mancini. They can get it where? It's available on Amazon. It's eight bucks, and what little proceeds I get from it, I'm putting into a, I started a nonprofit. What's the name of the nonprofit? It's called Stop Opioid Overdose Now, or soon. Okay. I like it. I like it. It's just getting off the ground, and I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but... Well, first thing, you got to get a website. Okay. we got to get a website. we gotta, we got to get some platform. <laughs> you've got the message, and you've obviously got the intelligence and the means of conveying it. we just got to... We gotta get some traffic to it. We gotta get a billboard. And I can help with that. I can give you some suggestions. I might take you up on that. I probably will. Um, so the book is again available on Amazon. I'm, I'm giving you hope. I'm giving you hope about the hope. future. We can figure this out. We can figure this out. And obviously, it's an issue. I thank you very much for your time. If people had questions for you, do you have an email address or anything like that? Yes. Uh, I can be emailed at josephcmancini at gmail.com. Okay, so that's Joseph C, last name M A N C I N I, at gmail.com. Obviously, this crisis is hitting everybody. So if you're out there and if you know somebody, if you want to find ways of helping. There's a medical doctor who's, you know, deep in this crisis and obviously wants to offer solutions and wants to help people. If you don't know where to go, there's somebody that you can at least reach out to and get some answers. And I'm sure you have a Happy problem. to do that. Happy to do that. We're going to get you out there talking. we got to get you out there okay, talking. Good. But first, got to bring traffic <laughs> to where you're at. So thank you very much for listening to Ubuntu People's Podcast. I know we always try to find interesting people and interesting conversations, and this was no exception. So uh, Dr. Mancini, thank you. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again on the Ubuntu People's Podcast. Thank you. They said it wasn't a gateway drug My homie was taking subs and he ain't wake up The whole while, these billionaires, they kicked up Paying off Congress, so we take their drugs Murderers, who will never face the judge And we dance into a song about a face gone numb But I seen homies turn gray, noses draining blood I could have been gone, our 30s faded in that tub That's Prince, Michael and Whitney, that's Amy Ledger and Pimpsy That's Yams, that's DJ AM, goddamn them Making the killing. Now it's getting the tension cause Sarah, Katie, and Billy. But this shit's been going on from Seattle out to South Philly. It just moved about the city. And
spread out to the burbs Now it's everybody's problem, got a nation on the verge Take activists off the market, jack the price up on the syrup But Purdue Pharma's about to move that work the drug dealer was a doctor, doctor Had the plug from Big Pharma, Pharma He said that he would heal me, heal me But he only gave me problems, problems My drug dealer was a doctor, doctor Had the plug from Big Pharma Trying to kill me, kill me He tried to kill me for a dollar, dollar And these devils, they keep on talking to me They screaming, open the bottle I wanna be at peace My hand is gripping that throttle I'm running out of speed Try to close my eyes But I just keep on sweating Through these sheets, through these sheets For a horseman They won't let me forget I wanna forge a prescription Cause doctor, I need some more of it When morphine and heroin Is more of your budget I said I never use a needle But sure, fuck it I'm caught up, I'm on one I'm nauseous, no options Exhausted this is not what I started Walking carcass, I lost everything I wanted My blinds drawn, too gone to leave this apartment My drug dealer was a doctor, doctor Had the plug from Big Pharma, Pharma He said that he would heal me, heal me But he only gave me problems, problems My drug dealer was a doctor, doctor Had the plug from Big Pharma Keep trying to kill me, kill me Tried to kill me for a dollar, dollar Re-up, re-up That certificate signed the prenup Ain't no coming back from this Percocet activist Ambient Adderall, Xanax bench Best friends with the thing that's killing me Enemies with my best friend There's no healing me Refilling these, refilling these They say it's death, death so God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change Courage to change the things I can And the wisdom to know the difference And the wisdom to know the difference